2: welcome back to pod save the world i'm tommy vitor i'm max fisher ben is off this week so max is jumping in as co-host it's great to see you uh before joining crooked media max covered foreign affairs for some obscure niche outlets like the New York Times, the Washington Post, Vox, the Atlantic. Anyone snore. Missing? Snore. So are some of the biggest names in all of media. He also wrote a great book called The Chaos Machine, which details all social media, rewired our brains and, frankly, societies all around the world. So, this is an
0: amazing introduction. Well, I feel like I should be
2: giving you some props here. Uh, you you're a an- lot better credentialed than I am. I'm, uh, I am sell underwear. <laughs> you know, That's what we do but, here. But what underwear it is. You know that it has evolved over time. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners have noticed it has evolved over time. Uh, it is really funny to think back. The most scandalous thing in politics was Bill Clinton being asked boxers or briefs at one point. I had forgotten about that. And then what he are... was like, I'll show you scandalous.
0: The 90s are just, so, I know we're going to talk about like the incredible prudishness it's of so the stupid. 90s, but it's always coming back, too. Yeah,
2: like they, yeah. We're going to talk about like the Tommy Tuberville stuff. It's like 90s throwback. That guy. Ugh, that guy. Pretty good coach let's be honest okay so <laughs> got a lot of news today updates on the war in ukraine uh the latest in the seemingly endless series of stories based on these classified pentagon documents that were leaked to the social media site mm. discord by the way how pissed do you think all the other outlets are that the washington post <laughs> seems to have gotten all of these documents and nobody else has
0: i so i have friends who are on both the post and the new york times teams and they, every time one of them has a story, the people on the other paper are like, oh, we had that. Or they have some excuse for like, oh, actually, we have this other story that was better. Or like, they cheated to get that
2: one. I was and, gonna say, I guess that's better than your editor coming to you every day, being like, can we match that, can we match that? Oh, there's a lot of that too. That's probably yeah. happening anyway. But
0: I think they're having a great time. I okay. think they both love it. It's mm. a, a good natured rivalry.
2: Okay, it's nice to hear. So there's also election results in Turkey and Thailand. Uh, why the US is in a war of words with South Africa. The aforementioned uh, Senator Tommy Tuberville. Is it Tuberville or Tuberville? Who cares? He's an asshole. Uh, (laughs) Some shorter updates on Sudan, Gaza, China, Title 42. And then Max, you are our in-house optimist. Uh, yes. And you promised to make us feel hopeful, so I'm excited for that.
0: I have five five good news things to make you feel the warm and fuzzies. And also, frankly, the, the Turkey and Thailand stuff, I'm really excited to get into because it's some like some pretty encouraging stuff happening in yeah, the Yeah, it's, it's big news.
2: Uh, and we're going to go guest list today so that Max and I can really spread our wings <laughs> and, and flourish here. <laughs> it's, uh, time yeah, it's time to be free. It's time to be free. But before we get to the international news, Max, we have some big crooked media news. Uh, we have launched our own subscription community, the Friends of the Pod, We really stretched ourselves uh, to get that name. (laughs) Um, If you join today, you'll get more news and politics content. You get access to weekly bonus content like the subscription-only show, Terminally Online, which is very fun and very stupid. Uh, A a community of friends of the pod on Discord. I've been on the Discord a bunch. It's a very fun, like really good group of people, frankly. And then uh, lots of dumb behind-the-scenes moments, much more. Through Friends of the Pod, you can also have the option of donating part of your monthly subscription directly to Vote Save America so you could help organize voters for 2024 and beyond. So go to crooked.com slash friends to learn more and get a 10% discount for a limited time only. Have I sold you, Max? I th- it's nice to be able to subscribe to something that is also doing something good in yeah, the world. Nice.
0: Yeah. It's it's like, you know, it's something that's unique about this place. I think is really special. The Vote
2: Save America volunteers are like some of the best people ever. I remember during the pandemic we did. Uh, several trainings in a row and I did the first one and we were expecting a few thousand, it was like 30,000 people and I was like crying like a baby and this Zoom was very pathetic. It was pandemic era, so we were all very emotional. Sure, Um yeah. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> speaking of emotional, uh, <laughs> scary night last night for people in Ukraine, Max, because Russia launched a huge barrage of missiles at Ukrainian cities. The good news is that Ukraine's missile defense systems, presumably the new American-made Patriot missile batteries, were able to intercept all of them including the most advanced hypersonic version uh, of the Russian missiles. President Zelensky, meanwhile, has been on the road. Uh, He went to Italy, France, Germany, and the UK. During those visits, he was promised billions in military aid, including a $3 billion commitment from the Germans, uh, and air defense systems, drones, and long-range missiles from the UK. Rishi Sunak, the British Prime Minister, promised to start training Ukrainian pilots on the F-16 fighter jets. Now Ukraine just needs to get some of those jets (laughs) from someone, but... uh, the U.S. is not offering yet. That
0: you don't think being on the flight simulator is enough? You're yeah, fighting fighting the
2: Russians on um, PlayStation yeah, from like Sega Genesis <laughs> or whatever. So uh, last December over in the U.S., Congress passed a forty eight billion dollar aid package for Ukraine. All but six billion of that money has been spent. Uh, and mm. many people are worried about getting more out of the Republican House of Representatives. So passing the hat in Europe will be key for Ukraine's ability to keep fighting. Zelensky also met with Pope Francis while in Italy. The pope has been pushing for peace talks. Interesting to see how that develops. So, Max, two questions mm. first. How much do you think it killed Boris Johnson, the disgraced former prime minister, <laughs> to see Rishi Sunak getting the cool photo op with Zelensky yeah. at Chequers, the prime yeah. minister's country house?
0: I think it did kill him, but Boris was still one of the first in in Kyiv, which is I, I don't like to hand it to the guy, but you kind of have to hand it to the guy. That yeah, was I mean, pretty good. Um, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, true. Two, do we think Zelensky is essentially like waiting to get these commitments? before they begin this long-promised spring offensive so that Ukraine knows like literally how much ammunition they can expend? Right. It's about
0: figuring out what Ukraine can do with their spring offensive, which is their answer to the big Russian offensive over the winter. But it's also, it's much bigger than that. It's about figuring out what is the rest of the war going to look like? Because there is, I gather, a sense in Kyiv that while they were still getting an enormous amount of Western support and things like the training on the Mm F-16s, that they probably hit the high water mark. This winter was probably about the pinnacle of Western support. And now it's going to be this struggle for getting each incremental piece and keeping it going. Because this war is really more than it's even a war of front lines or troop movements, a war of attrition. And that is in terms of, you know, artillery shells and... um, tubes, but it's also about money. And that's both sides, I think, are hitting a point where they're not running out, but it's running lower. And that's going to affect how they can fight this war. Yeah. In how long.
2: It really is like a grinding World War One style, like war of attrition at times of just yeah. sort of how much artillery can you launch per week and political attrition yeah. and
0: economic attrition yeah. and industrial attrition. And it's like like so much of the war is going to come down to, I think, just like factories and munitions and industrial policy and sanctions on Russia. But of course, behind all of this, and I'm sure coming up in all of his meetings in Europe, are murmurs over whether it's time to start pushing for a peace deal, which is also interlinked with this question of how much support and for how long. That's true.
2: And, and listeners can see this, but we're both wearing kind of a Zelensky green shirts today. <laughs> so in solidarity. Uh, Joe Biden goes to the G7 on Wednesday when this show comes out. I'm sure this will be a huge topic of conversation, uh, Ukraine, yeah. that is. Uh, President Trump was asked about the war in Ukraine during his CNN town hall. Here's a clip. Do you, you want over.
1: Ukraine to win this war? Uh,
0: I don't think in terms of winning and losing. I think in terms of getting it settled so we stop killing all
2: these people and breaking down is
1: country. Not. What do you, can I just follow up on that? You but said you don't think you in have terms to do of winning is you have losing. To get losing. Mr. To President, get can I just follow up on that, because that's a really important thing no, Excuse me, let me just, just follow made up. There. Can you say if you want Ukraine or Russia to win this war?
0: I want everybody to
1: stop dying, they're dying, Russians and Ukrainians. I want them to stop dying. And I'll have that done, I'll have that done in 24 hours, I'll have it done.
2: So, It is objectively weird that he won't say that he wants the country that was invaded to win the war. When the other, when the Russians are committing war crimes, I do wonder um, if that answer would be popular among (laughs) a broad swath of the electorate. Unfortunately, it sounds reasonable.
0: I'm not. I'm not a like Putin is controlling Trump like conspiracy guy. I'm not like a P-tape conspiracy guy. But his repeated. Just rushing to embrace whatever Putin's position is, whatever is driving that is really striking, clearly part of this. And also, we know he has a grudge against Zelensky because Zelensky would not dig up the, you know, quote unquote, dirt that Trump wanted uh, to, you know, try to defeat Biden. Biden, Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I I mean, I don't know. We we, we went through this in 2015, 2016, where Trump would say things that sounded kind of dovish and sounded about like we're going to make peace. And then he would get in and he wouldn't do anything. He wasn't interested. And his only involvement would be to turn the screws on allies to try to extract resources and commitments from them.
2: Yeah. And meanwhile, there's all this speaking of turning the screws. There's a lot of pressure on Joe Biden to skip the G7 to Mm. stay home and deal with the debt ceiling. I don't think there's any chance he's going to do that. but. You know it's nice of uh, kevin mccarthy to manufacture a controversy in advance of a global summit to try to uh, embarrass the president we the love the
0: congressional republicans just helping out with you know how much they care about american
2: greatness and yeah. american standing That's in the right. world so That's they're right. always always willing to pitch in for that. america first max so um in public <laughs> president Zelensky has shown a lot of restraint i think we're talking about the war he mm-hmm. talks about repelling invaders liberating ukrainian villages uh he has promised repeatedly not to use u.s weapons to strike inside russia because of escalation concerns but a document in the discord leak of classified pentagon documents uh, paints a very different picture behind closed doors it says has proposed occupying cities on the russian side of the border to gain leverage in future negotiations bombing a russian oil pipeline to hungary and hitting targets inside russia Uh, Previously, the Post had reported on Ukraine considering attacking Russian-linked forces in Syria. We've also seen all these mysterious drone attacks and things within Russia and Crimea. This intelligence certainly seems to help explain why the U.S. has been so resistant to provide longer-range missiles and fighter jets. Uh, Mm. So, you know, reading this piece, I can't say I'm surprised by Zelensky's frustration or desire to kind of go on offense. I was a little surprised to read about it in the newspaper. Um, It is one of the first times I've wondered about the ethics of publication of of this document. I'm not criticizing the reporters who did so. I just made you think about it. Zelensky, you know, he may have been considering occupying a Russian village, but he didn't do it, right? right? And now the Russians could maybe use this to paint him as some sort of aggressor. You have covered foreign Mm. affairs for years. You've been in conversations in newsrooms about when or when not to publish a story, what to withhold. What do you make of the post decision to go go ahead with this one, and what are those conversations
0: like? So I initially, like you, I saw this, and I was like, huh, that's kind of a lot to put in the newspaper, because this will have or could have some kind of real ramifications, because Mm -hmm. these are really drastic steps that he's talking about. So, you know, I talked to some people, at these papers about what they were thinking and and you know kind of thought back to my own experience of this stuff and I, I started to talk myself into being a little bit more comfortable with it. Uh, but to answer your question, like what are the considerations? The first one is always, will publishing this put someone in harm's way? And you'll notice that in the Discord leaks that have been published so far, you're not seeing things like tank movements or, you know, prospective tank movements, even though those are probably in the document. So it stands to reason that there is somewhere a line and things are being held back. Um, But you also have to consider, of course, whether there are other negative real world ramifications. And that gets a little tricky because then you have to guess at the impact, which means you have to guess what do other people know. And if you think this information would be a surprise to Moscow. I think that's one of the scenarios that would be potentially really dangerous because yeah. they could get freaked out by that and they maybe they feel like they have to respond or maybe just the fact that it's now public they feel like they have to respond. I think it's probably unlikely that Moscow would be shocked by this partly because if these files are on a Discord server and the post has them. Probably Russia has well, them too.
2: That does seem like a big open question, right? I mean, I, I bet that is the presumption. Mm, yeah. But it was like kind of a couple of niche Discord sites. I mean, it, yeah. you know, Russian intelligence right. was no more destined to be there than U.S. Right. intelligence was. Right. So I, I couldn't tell. It's 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 true. And we can't, you know, they can't call up the Kremlin and say, hey, did you know?
0: <laughs> it just that gets them, yeah. So you have to do when, and I've been in situations where you have stuff like this. You have to do like projecting out a few steps and what do we think people yeah. know and the i think the thing that a lot of people are upset about that i think actually should not be a consideration here anything probably wasn't was whether this would like hurt zelensky publicly or in washington because like russia could use it against him or his critics could use yeah, it against totally him right. yeah i mean i think that's a case for publishing. Because if Zelensky is pushing for attacking Russia, that's really significant. And that's the And the US deal.
2: intelligence who knows it.
0: you're right. Yeah. yeah. The US intelligence already knows it. I think there's a case for pulling the public into it rather than saying, oh, you know, this could hurt him publicly. And I I kind of came around to thinking it's on the edge but the people who this might lead to react in a negative way that would hurt people probably already knew about it and if we're talking about like well there might be a public backlash against Zelensky. It's like well then maybe he shouldn't be suggesting attacking within russia if he thinks the american public isn't going to like that
2: yeah or maybe it'll continue to encourage him not to do it right. by the way Zelensky yeah, must be furious about this i mean he said that the white house hasn't called him about these leaks i, I don't know maybe that means the cia did or somebody else but boy Rough for a rough couple of weeks for this That's guy. That's
0: what I have heard. That he is pretty unhappy with the post. Yeah,
2: yeah. So the other eye popping uh, Discord leak was about everyone's favorite caterer turned private mercenary group founder <laughs> uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin. Our guy, our guy. Prigozhin founded uh, and runs the Wagner Group, which is a private army in Russia that has done a ton of fighting in Ukraine and parts of Africa, especially in Bakhmut lately in Ukraine, where the the fighting has been the worst. Prigozhin has been very vocal about his frustration with Russian military leaders. He says they won't provide them with uh, you know, ammunition, uh, weapons, equipment, etc. Uh, last week, the Washington Post reported that Prigozhin has had ongoing secret communications with Ukraine's military intelligence service. And that at one point, Prigozhin offered to give Ukraine information about Russian troop positions. If the Ukrainian military would agree to withdraw troops from the Bakhmut region, where the Wagner guys were fighting. So wild. Wild. It was really wild. Like, so Ukraine apparently didn't take Prigozhin up on the offer because they didn't (laughs) trust him. I wonder why. But that has not stopped Ukrainian intelligence from taking Prigozhin's calls and even meeting with him in Africa, something that Prigozhin himself confirmed on Telegram. Um, Prigozhin also reportedly encouraged Ukrainian forces to attack Crimea, and talked about Russian troop morale being low in certain places. Um the documents seem to suggest that the Kremlin might know Prigozhin's having these talks, but it's not totally clear. Mm-hmm. Max, when I saw this headline, I thought start the countdown clock until Prigozhin <laughs> falls out of a very tall window. Right. But maybe it's more muddled like what what do you think? Do you think is is he in deep
0: shit here? So we, uh, he has often been written about and Wagner's often been written about as this like shadowy private army run by Vladimir Putin. And it's never really been quite the case. It's always been this kind of like mercenary rogue actor who happens to align with the Russian state and mm-hmm. to serve things that they need. Because they have real capacity problems, real state capacity problems in Africa and Ukraine, which is, I think, why he's going to stick around. But I think they have known for a long time that he is a total loose cannon who is yeah, out yeah. for himself because he's been fighting with the Russian defense ministry for like a year and they're like really working to undermine them. And they've been working to undermine him. And I mean, this is a like, in some ways, a like problem that dates back to medieval Europe, where when you have these private uh, mercenary armies, they act for themselves. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's very true. Um, d- just last thing on the discord leaks. i um, Previous reporting has alluded to this, but The Washington Post wrote a long profile of the Discord leaker, this 21-year-old member of the Air National Guard named Jack Teixeira. Uh, We learned in this that Teixeira believed he was preparing for a war against Black people, liberals, Jews, and the LGBT community and that he was amassing an arsenal of guns and other gear for said war. He had all kinds of conspiratorial beliefs. He voiced his support for a number of mass shooters, including the gunman from the Christchurch massacre in New Zealand because the victims were Muslim. Uh, The story once again raises serious questions about how this kid got a security clearance, especially since he was suspended from high school (laughs) for making violent racist threats. Uh, And we also learned that he posted more of these documents, the classified documents on another even larger discord server so the universe of stuff that could be out there still seems vast
0: it does it it does make me wonder why was this stuff so widely available to so many people although maybe the better question is why are people this like i'm sorry but psychotic filling out these roles in the military and i assume the answer is just because you know force exhaustion from 20 years of war and it's hard to get people to go for these because they're tough jobs yeah
2: i don't know this guy this should not pass a bat it's really shocking yeah truly Plus, um, he's a
0: video gamer which is that's the you know
2: big time gamer it does sound like uh you know i think he joined the military in 2019 during the pandemic, these Discord groups yeah. got really close. Maybe right. got more conspiratorial. Maybe everyone went into them. I mean, I was on, I was on,
0: I was on group chats during the pandemic. Things got a little dark in there.
2: Yeah, things got dark. I mean, there was that period of time where it was fun, and you were like sure. uh, zooming with all your high school friends and stuff. And then by like six months in, I was like, I can't do another zoom.
0: Yeah, once at like nine months, once we started becoming um, white nationalist insurgents, the, <laughs> the group chat was just. Other- also, I should say, I was kidding about he's a video gamer, so therefore he's bad. The gamers
2: don't come after me. I'm no. pro gamers. The, we're, we're all programmers. Okay, so enough about uh, this guy, or at least until we get to the Tommy uh, Tuberville section. So the the eyes, the world, oh eyes of the world, it doesn't quite work. We're on Turkey this weekend, <laughs> where President Tayyip Erdogan faced his most difficult uh, election in years against an opposition leader named Kamal Kilic Darulu. Erdogan got about 49% of the vote on Sunday. Kilic Darulu got about 45%. Neither of them got 50%, so they go to a runoff on May 28th. Erdogan will likely benefit from the fact that this is now a head-to-head matchup, whereas before there was, in particular, another far-right nationalist candidate who got about 5%. Presumably, those voters would go to Erdogan. Erdogan is seen as uh, politically vulnerable or was seen as politically vulnerable because of the government's botched response to the recent earthquake that killed at least 50,000 people in Turkey and because Erdogan's economic mismanagement led to record inflation Many people around the world are also, I think, understandably quite worried about Erdogan's increasingly dictator light kind of tendencies. Yeah. Dictator Um, medium, you (laughs) could say. Yeah. The the vote (laughs) itself seems to have been free, but not necessarily fair because Erdogan, to your point, has so much control over the media. So, Max, Turkey is a NATO member. They're part of the G20. The U.S. and Turkey Mm. have worked together closely on a lot of issues. I remember going to Turkey with Obama in 09, for example. It was surprising to me to see news reports about how the United States was openly cheering for Erdogan to lose, given Erdogan's likely reaction if he won. Can you help listeners understand why people are so eager to see Erdogan go, and I guess why the average listener should care about who the hell's running Turkey?
0: So this is, I I would argue that this is, regardless of how the second round turns out, the most important election this year. Is that crazy, do you think? No, tell me why. So the Erdogan story, is i think such a fascinating one and it like tells us how we got here and i think it also tells us a lot about how the world has changed over the last 20 years and how we went from this era of optimism to Mm -hmm. one of a little bit more pessimism because When he first came into office in 2003, being the mayor of Istanbul, he was widely seen as a good guy, as this like force for democracy and progress. And Turkey was coming out of this long period of repression and on and off military rule. And Erdogan was seen as representing this like new order of elections and popular legitimacy. And he expanded social services. He lifted a bunch of the country out of poverty. He expanded some personal freedoms. He tripled. GDP per capita, wow. which is wild. Think about how much you would like Joe Biden if he tripled your like net worth and your bank yeah, account. Cool. Yeah, let's you do would that. Like yeah, <laughs> and he, mo- especially, he modernized Turkey and these cities with these like huge, huge construction boom and construction projects. And he was pro EU. He was pro Arab Spring when he was involved in. And he was kind of remaking Turkey into this new regional power in the Middle East. And like I- you probably remember the like era when we were like all kind of excited about Erdogan.
2: Yeah, I mean, we certainly. I mean, you know, it make. I think it was Obama's first trip or one of his earliest trips mm-hmm. included a stop in Turkey. Hmm. My 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 main memory from that trip was the plane breaking and us getting stuck there overnight. <laughs> so we actually got to do cool <laughs> tour stuff and also, oh, cool. uh, walking around the then Turkish president's home, President Gul, uh, with my colleague at the time, Mike Hammer, who was another NSC spokesman, who's now the special envoy. For the Horn of Africa. So he went on to bigger and better things. But um, <laughs> he, he wishes he was potting. Come on. Yeah. But that's an interesting point, because at the time, the, the president was a ceremonial position. And Erdogan was the prime minister. Erdogan was yeah. the prime minister. Yeah. And then Erdogan changed the rules or changed right. the constitution to give right. the president power. And now he's the president.
0: Right. And the like. Yeah. So it's, I, the 2008 is kind of a fascinating. I think that's kind of the high watermark of, like, Erdogan as this, like, democratic reformer and this modernizer and everybody loves him. And things started to really turn 10 years in and 20... You probably remember like the big Gezi Park protest, this like park in Istanbul. Yes. Um, It started as this environmentalist rally against overdevelopment in the big cities, but became eventually this wider backlash among the urban middle class, which has always been kind of Erdogan skeptical over what they saw as him creeping towards rolling back some of the freedoms that Hmm. he had once championed. And Erdogan cracks down really violently on these protests. It's actually kind of a little bit like echoes of moscow 2011 2012. Mm. um some of the protesters get hit with these bogus sedition charges and like 20-year prison sentences and this is kind of like the start of erdogan's slide into this like elected strongman model that we now see so many of in the world and turkish society starts polarizing but then a big step comes in 2016 when a bunch of rogue military officers attempt a coup it fails but erdogan out of like opportunism or paranoia or probably both launches these like purges just um 77,000 people are arrested, mostly on these like vague charges Mm -hmm. of political disloyalty. Uh, He expels hundreds of thousands of civil servants from the government. So guts his own government, announces these emergency laws, it takes over the courts, he purges universities and civil society. And he starts to become like a little wacky yeah (laughs) you remember these like neo-imperial ceremonies he would hold like dressed up like a 19th century like ottoman imperial and he would like ranting we start with like conspiracy theories people would meet with him and say there's something off about this guy and turkey starts to like feel like a police state Starts backsliding really hard in the opposite direction and then he like you said he blows up the economy because he's fired all the technocrats from his government and he's doing all this cronyism with these like guys and construction he's fantastically corrupt which is a big part of why when Turkey is hit by this big earthquake in February all of this construction that he'd overseen turns out to be just insanely substandard because it was all through corruption and bribes it collapses kills 50,000 people maybe a lot more but the, like Erdogan is also he's, he's terrible for Turkey, which matters because 85 million people live there. And it's also one of these most beautiful countries in the world, I think. Yeah. Truly. But it, it's also it's bad for Europe and the Middle East because Turkey is really involved in both. And he's turned himself into this kind of like geopolitical spoiler. He's getting close with Putin. But I think more than anything else for me, what matters about this guy losing and why it is so important that he lose is that he really embodies this new global trend of the like elected leader who hardened into the strong man in office, which is like arguably one of the biggest threats we face in the world. And like he's a leading case of it, Orban in Hungary, the Philippines in India, and like Trump in the United yeah, States. Like right. these guys are like all of one piece. And I think that's why all, basically all of the democratic world is lined up in wanting to see Erdogan and what he
2: represents defeated which p- voters got really close to. So close. Man, that, that 2016 coup attempt, I'll never forget watching that because I think you had fighter jets flying around the Capitol. I yeah. think Erdogan was sort of FaceTiming <laughs> into the state TV <laughs> yeah. network from his right. plane, right. delivering a message of like, go to the streets, you know, yeah. fight them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he did sort of, he did slide into autocracy and you've watched the U.S. and really all Western countries kind of try to recalibrate in real time. I mean, the, mm. the U.S., recently agreed to sell turkey f-16 upgrades but they're also blocking sweden from joining nato turkey is right right. so there's push and pull constantly with this guy
0: he's um he's not great and he's he's he's, if he gets another four or five years he's just gonna get worse yeah he'll probably die in office at this point yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of at this point where like I think it's easy to look at a strongman like this and say, well, oh, he's a dictator, so of course he's going to win the election. But the new like way that this str- electoral strongman works is there's usually a period of like ten or twenty years where they're slowly consolidating power, where they still need elections, and yep. they, like like you said, the vote itself looks like. It was probably fair. Like the opposition party was watching the polls. They were watching the ballots come in. They say it's fair. But it's the other 364 days of the year when, you know, the state media is only covering him and ignoring the opposition. You don't hear about the opposition because civil society has been gutted and there's this like climate of
2: fear. by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What's the first thing you do if you had an extra hour in your day?
1: Oh man, what would
2: I do? Sleep would be nice. Yeah, yeah. Hang out with my daughter. I don't know, take a nap, read a book. I nah, wouldn't do a book. And I, listen, I wish I would pick book. Yeah, but uh, listen, we all wish we had another hour in a day. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Whoa! My therapist is trying to get me to be still for five minutes a day. So much harder than it sounds. Oh yeah. There's too many videos to see. There will be a podcast in my ear. The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of giving therapy a try, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Speaking of frenemies, Max, uh, the U.S. is now in this war of wars with South Africa. Uh, the backstory is recently the U.S. ambassador to South Africa did a press conference in, in Pretoria, in the capital, and accused the South African government of providing weapons and ammunition to Russia for use in Ukraine. The evidence was there was this cargo ship that was linked to a sanctioned company that secretly docked at a naval base near Cape Town in December mm-hmm. and got loaded up with something. Uh, South African President Cyril Ramaphosa denied the allegations, but also said he would investigate them, what was happening at his own (laughs) naval base. So that didn't inspire confidence. But then sort of as this shitstorm is fully kicked up, Mm. uh, the Russian government this morning, I believe, or whatever time zone it was on, announced that the head of South Africa's army was in Moscow for (laughs) meetings (laughs) <laughs> Conspicuous timing. Yeah, the South African government said, whoa, 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 this meeting was planned in advance of, you know, you guys releasing these allegations, which I would argue was kind of the whole problem right. and the point. Right. So, um, Ramaphosa also suggested that Vladimir Putin might visit South Africa in August for the BRICS meeting. Um, so, you know, the the official South African position on the war in Ukraine is neutrality. It um, doesn't, doesn't feel so neutrality, it? feels less it? neutral, right. I mean, what do you think going on here? Is this Look, is is this the U.S. reaping what it sowed and no one trusts us and our intelligence after Iraq 20 years later is, you know, are South Africa playing some dirty games like where do you land? I. So I
0: think that this is something that is really specific to South Africa and more specific than like you're saying, the kind of generalized distrust of the U.S. or the West or the like we've talked about a lot on the show, the generalized global south skepticism mm-hmm. of the Ukrainian side in the war. Um You were in the White House in 2011. Do you remember the weird role that South Africa played in the Libyan civil war and the diplomacy around the civil war? Barely. So even after everyone in the entire world had lined up against Muammar Gaddafi's government because he was fighting this Arab Spring rebellion, like everyone in the uh, African Union had lined up against him. All of the other Arab states had lined up against him. It was not just a Western thing. South Africa was the one holdout where Hmm. they were still siding with him publicly even after he fell they were blocking at the u.n recognition for the new rebel government and you talk to people in south africa people new south africa they would say this is all about the anti-apartheid movement because qaddafi had been and this will come back to russia had been a huge backer of the anti-apartheid struggle personally hmm. and financially. And the thing about the South African government, it is still full of people who personally fought in that. Right, yeah. So it's not even just like, oh, we owe like a national debt. It's like these are people who personally benefited from that and personally think that the entire South African nation as they know it owes a debt to Gaddafi. And That's that scary. is really true of South Africa's relationship with Moscow too. Huh. And the Soviet Union was in the 70s and 80s a really big backer of the anti-apartheid movement. Now, it was all geopolitics, of course, right. much as the U.S. played cynical Cold geopolitics. War, yeah. yeah, right, right, right. But they um, they were training. They would bring anti-apartheid leaders, including Thabo Mbeki, who later became a South African president, to Moscow for training. They got really involved in this proxy war in Angola that humiliated the South African government. So my sense is that this is a continuation of this belief that like we South Africa as a nation and what we believe in really owes a debt to Russia. And those are, you know, they came for us or they helped us out when no one else would.
2: Well, that is fascinating context. I mean, I wonder what this investigation will find about the uh, the ship at the port and, and <laughs> what was loaded up into it. I mean, it does seem likely that you know, if this was a, a sanctioned, you know, Russian entity's ship that the U.S. is probably watching it for a long time and sure. knows where it came from and knows right. where it went and maybe has a good sense of what right, was loaded up on.
0: Shocked, it. yeah. Did you see that South Africa is leading a bunch of a, a Pan African diplomatic and peace initiative to Europe? I did see that. It's it's kind of funny. Yeah, I hope it works. Yeah. let's see. Oh no, it's great. I'm all for it. It just you have to you have to appreciate the irony of a Pan African diplomatic initiative to the war torn European continent to yeah. help the like Europeans get it together, which yes. they need, which yes. you know.
2: Look, yes, I I, I know exactly what you're saying. So, Max, big news in Thailand. Uh, Huge news in Thailand. We don't talk about Thailand enough here.
0: uh, Thailand is fascinating. It's a fascinating place. It's much more developed, middle class, democratic than people know. And this election is huge. I'm really jazzed about it.
2: Okay, so we got this progressive move forward party. Mm -hmm. They trounced two military-aligned parties currently running the government, the coalition running the government. I think the coalition in charge got like 15% of the vote or something like that. did not do so well. Move forward, this new party has promised to reform the military, reform the economy, and even to reform laws against criticizing Thailand's royal family, which is a big deal. Mm -hmm. Uh, The move forward party grew out of these pro-democracy protests that started in 2020. Uh, In 2014, a military coup ousted the elected government at the time, and this is only the second election since then. The other opposition party took second place in the most recent elections. Neither is enough seats in Parliament to form a government outright, so they gotta cut a deal and form a coalition. Next, help us understand why you think this is such a big deal and why you are more optimistic than I am that these civilian <laughs> leaders won't get, you know, pushed aside or imprisoned right, right. like, you know, democratically elected governments in, in Myanmar, for example. Sure. So
0: Let me give you the like 90 second history of Thailand and how we got because I just think it's it's a fascinating story. So Thailand has always stood out from the rest of Southeast Asia. It's wealthier per capita. It has a big middle class. It has these highly developed democratic politics, but it also has more military coups in the modern era than any other country in the world. And it's like not even close. They have depending on you count it, 13 or 14 coups in the last year, which is that's that's a a huge number. And it, the military sees itself as playing this very unusual role in Thai society. As And I'm not endorsing this as safeguarding Thai democracy, which weirdly they actually helped to bring about in the first place. Their first coup in the 30s was to replace the absolute monarchy with a constitutional monarchy. Mm-hmm. And what happens is the military ever since... Steps in basically any time it thinks political turmoil is getting out of control. So mass protests, military coup, political deadlock, military coup. And typically it hands power back to an elected government within a year or so. Mm. Um, But this system, which was never great, started to, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) hot take. Hot take. Don't love regular military coups. Um, Started to kind of spiral out of control and the coups got way more common starting about... 20 years ago. And there are two reasons for this. One is that the Thai... Monarchy, which in theory is supposed to act as this kind of problem-solving mediator in politics, became much, much weaker. The king was getting really old and probably senile. Then he died in 2016. Right. His son took over, who is super unpopular, which I can say because Crooked does not have an office in Thailand. But if we did, I would have to be really careful about saying that. You get like 15 the, years. You could actually go to jail. How yeah, do you I, say
2: Les Majestés? Is that how you say this last? less, less Majestés? I don't know, something like that. Yeah. Something <laughs> French,
0: something. I, <mean. laughs> I got pretty close to and all, all of my French yeah, classes not my so between the two of us. We'll, 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 we'll nail this one. Yeah.
2: Anyway, don't go to Thailand and insult the, uh, the king.
0: Don't, un- until these reforms get instituted. Right. So the, the second reason that Thai politics t- started to spiral out of control 20 years ago is they became super, super polarized. For a long time, the country's urban middle class were mostly in the south of the country, pro-establishment, pro-monarchy had dominated politics. But then 2001, this guy who is really important in Thailand, named Thaksin Shinawatra, comes along and he starts organizing the rural poor who are mostly in the north and who are actually a slight majority of the population to get mm. involved in politics. And I don't want to make it sound like I'm calling Shinawatra like a hero of the people. He's this like billionaire businessman. He's kind of an opportunist. And he has a little bit of a flavor of the like electoral strongman populist, like sure, we were yeah. talking about. And when he becomes prime minister in 2001, he starts amassing power for himself, freaks out the political establishment who fight him at every turn. And this sets off this cycle of unrest, protests, counter protests, there'd be a coup, then Shinawatra or like one of his many family members would win power again in the next election and then there would be more unrest and then another coup society gets more and more polarized and that leads the military to this coup that you mentioned the most recent one in 2014 to hold on to power longer than usual and it directly rules until 2019 when it hands over power to a civilian government Mm -hmm. under this new constitution that makes it much easier for the military-backed party to win. Although the party did also get a plurality of votes in the 2019 election because Thai society is still really polarized and there's still a lot of skepticism about like straight democracy. So it looked like this election, this most recent one on Sunday, was going to be a repeat of 2019 with the military-backed party doing well. Thai voters don't trust each other, really polarized. But that's not What happens? This progressive party move forward kind of comes out of nowhere and wins this huge, like you mentioned, 36 percent of the vote, which is huge when you have like 10, 15 parties running way more than any other party. And the party that comes in second is actually Thaksin Sinawatra's party, which is Futai. Uh, And the military back party is a really distant third. And this is huge. I think for two reasons, both of which I think if you're an American, you should actually like be really excited about, encouraged about. The first is that the progressive party is this new third force that breaks the polarization in Thai politics. Mm. And it gives Thai voters after 20 years of this like demographic division, really sharp division and distrust, a way to come together. And the second is the thing that it brings them together under, that they're coming together for. Is, is democracy, yeah. is to say whatever, you know, whatever economic, whatever religious divides we have, we have this national consensus for we want to fight the military. In the United States, it might be something else who we're fighting in order to put democracy first and to protect democracy through this vehicle of the move forward party. And I think these are both just amazing developments that are worth cheering and worth getting excited about. If you live in a country, say the United States, where polarization and rising sympathy for authoritarianism, like in Thailand in recent years, is getting higher,
2: yeah, and feels scary. I mean, so we should say this. You know, the the constitution is still kind of rigged in favor of the Super military. Rigged. So yeah. they have a unelected, 250-seat Senate that is chosen entirely by the military. You have to get a combined number of seats to form a government, so that sort of stacks the deck against you, but hopefully it's possible here. But to your point, I mean, if we're, you know, don't compare me uh, to the almighty, compare me to the alternative, as Joe Biden would say, (laughs) in neighboring Cambodia, uh, Prime Minister Hun Sen once again disqualified the country's main opposition party from running in the next election over ridiculous, uh, paperwork issues. Basically, they said, where is your founding documents? Nonsense. And the opposition yeah. party doesn't have the founding documents because when the government raided their office, they probably burned them up or took them or something yeah. back in the day.
0: So the, the progressive party in Thailand actually got disqualified under similar nonsense made up stuff in 2019. So I think the fact that the military you hate to give the Thai military credit for allowing elections to go forward because, of course, they should. So I'm not saying they did it because they're good guys, but I think they felt pressure and felt like they had to allow elections to go forward. And the sense among analysts is that they will probably extract some concessions Mm -hmm. from the political parties before they give them the rubber stamp to say, okay, you can form a government. Probably they won't change the less majeste laws or the laissez-majeste laws or whatever Mm -hmm. we're calling them. But uh, it seems like the Thai military is so allergic to unrest and protests and to being seen as a partisan actor. I think it's very likely they'll let it go forward and then we'll probably see a change in the constitution. The big question is whether this new coalition of the progressive pro-democracy party and the populist Shinawatra party can create a kind of new coalition in favor of democracy to avoid this cycle that Thailand has fallen into so many times for. But I know you are a little bit maybe less sunnily optimistic than I am. So what are you thinking? Listen,
2: I, I just worry about the uh, role that the guys with the guns play in all of these cases, whether it's Thailand, uh, Sudan, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, you know, Myanmar, Burma, whatever you want to call it. Um, so fingers crossed. Yeah. I will, uh, I'm going to stay hopeful here.
0: Yeah. I will say that the Thai military does not have... The record of the Sudanese and the Myanmar military of you know mass violence and um, you know shooting up huge numbers of people, and I don't think they want to rule in the way that the Sudanese military and the Myanmar military. I think they want to have it. They're like it's it's kind of like when Egypt's military took over in 2011. They wanted to get rid of Mubarak. They didn't actually want to run the country, and mm-hmm. they like threw away that hot potato pretty much as quickly as they could, and then took it back again. That is a good point.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Look, we'll see. We'll see. Hope springs eternal.
1: Hi, I'm Erin Ryan, a writer and host of the podcast Hysteria. Don't even get us started on our exclusive YouTube series, This Fucking Guy, where we try to figure out how the worst people in America got to be so awful. So if you're looking for a pod that's by the ladies and for everyone, make sure to subscribe to Hysteria wherever you get your podcasts.
2: You know, look, democracy is is the best system we got, but it's imperfect. Uh, and one of the reasons uh, is there is, in Washington at least, there's a constant, brutal battle yeah. to be named the dumbest United States senator. And uh, Wisconsin's <laughs> Ron Johnson. It's a tight John- race. It's <laughs> a tight race. You got Wisconsin's Ron Johnson. He's usually out in the lead. Yep. But Alabama Senator Tommy uh, Tuberville has mm-hmm. been coming for the crown lately. Let's let him explain why in this clip. You mentioned the... Biden administration trying to prevent um, white nationalists from being in the military. Do you believe they should allow white nationalists in the military? Well, they call them that. I call them Americans. So we had a little while ago talked about Jack Teixeira, who seemingly was a sort of Christian white nationalist preparing for a race war. while in the Air Force uh, leaking tons of documents. So it seems like it is a problem that that Senator Tuberville should know about. The exchange itself came in response to questions about why Senator Tuberville is holding up the confirmation of literally all military nominations over the Pentagon's abortion policy. So the Pentagon provides support for service members and their dependents who need abortion services but live Mm -hmm. in states like Alabama where abortion uh, is illegal. Even Mitch McConnell is on the record saying that this blanket military obstruction is a bad idea, So mm. a number of his colleagues. Um, and speaking of which, President Biden is reportedly considering reversing the Trump administration's proposal or plan to move the US Space Force Command from Colorado to a base in Alabama, in part because of Alabama's total abortion ban. Mm. So great work, Senator. You are holding up the entire U.S. military. You are preventing your state from uh, getting jobs and a big influx of money because you are an idiot. Well done. I mean, it, it's it's something that I feel like we have seen from Republican culture
0: warriors since the '90s, where it's they're they're presenting it as this like, oh, we have to protect the sanctity of the military and our fighting boys from the woke liberal Democrats. But in fact, what they are doing is. First of all, nothing that they are calling a threat to the military is actually a threat to it. I mean, that's, you know, we found that over and over again. They say, oh, no, if if you allow gays in the military, then we won't be able to fight. You know what? You can fight just fine. You're doing just
2: fine. Before that, women. Before that, African-Americans.
0: Exactly. Right, right. And then that he is at the same time, in fact, kneecapping the actual military that he claims to be serving it it actually like i don't want to get hyperbolic with this but this is something that was pretty common in like mid-century fascist european politics Hmm. i'm not saying that he is a european style fascist but it was this common culture war thing to present the cultural sanctity of the military as this thing that had to be protected because the armed forces were the embodiment of the soul of the Mm -hmm. nation and they had to be the like most traditionalist version of citizens that we could possibly imagine so they would fight these crazy culture wars over who could be in the military and what they could be because it's a way to advance this like right wing nationalist politics.
2: Yeah and look I remember it was not long ago maybe a year, year and a half where like people like Ted Cruz Mm. were retweeting these Russian propaganda videos for military recruitment for their military and being like, oh, no, if if the woke U.S. military ever goes up against these guys, we're cooked. And then, you know, the Ukrainian military delivers, you know, 100,000 casualties (laughs) to them. Right.
0: It is, it's amazing to see how readily they will buy into the Russian propaganda that because, Russia is a ultra-conservative dictatorship, therefore the military's real manly men, and that that is, I guess, what matters to them in terms of having an effective fighting force is whether they have like the right
2: cultural cues. Yeah, it's just the dumbest thing in the world. It's quite dumb. Um, a couple quicker things uh, before we get to the optimism. So... Last week, uh, Ben and I talked about concerns that there would be this drastic increase in the number of migrants attempting to cross the southern border Mm -hmm. after the expiration of Title 42, which is a Trump-era policy that allowed the U.S. government to use public health concerns to expel basically everyone trying to enter the country. But instead, Max, the exact opposite has happened. Uh, The U.S. Border Patrol agents have seen a 50% reduction in attempted crossings. The Secretary of Homeland Security says the reduction is likely because under Title 42, migrants knew they would get expelled, yes, but then they could just try again, uh, and again, and again, and again, until they got in. Now, you face much harsher penalties, including uh, a five-year ban potentially on re-entry and maybe even criminal penalties. So, you know, Max, I assume, the border crossing numbers will mm-hmm. fluctuate over time. They always have, they always will. They'll probably increase um, for a variety of reasons. But it is kind of remarkable mm. how wrong the conventional wisdom was here, including from Joe Biden himself. She sure. wasn't like us blaming the media. Yeah. I'm curious what you think happened. Like, was this just brilliant expectations management? Something else? <laughs> I mean, there's there's also been
0: there's been a few changes in Central America itself, which of course that's where things actually happen that yeah. lead people to flee for the United States or not to flee for the United States. Um, El Salvador has arrested basically all of the male population of certain adult ages. And there's like a really extreme effort to crack down on gangs, which has been effective at reducing violence, but is not so great if you are one of the many, many people arrested. Mexico, of course, is uh, at the United States behest doing a lot to stop migrants from reaching the border in the first place. I mean, to me all of this, you know, the numbers go up, the numbers go down, we change out one policy for another. I I to me it it feels like it's all basically the same policy which is extinguishing the right of asylum in the United States and the like it's it's any it's taking place in a way now that is a little bit more palatable and I think leads to fewer ugly incidents, but we've still basically killed the right to asylum.
2: Yeah, I mean, asylum laws were designed to comply with international laws and standards. True, and U.S. law. In U.S. law. I think the system uh, has gotten overwhelmed and it's not working. It's true. And Trump and now President Biden have moved away from it and instead are creating these country-by-country humanitarian Mm -hmm. parole numbers where they'll allow people in under certain conditions and they'll expel others. Um, And I totally understand those who um, think it's wrong and believe that, you know, we're basically shredding up asylum law and rights in real time, but also the frustration for people in government who feel like, well, the status quo isn't working for anyone, so we need to do something else. I also, talking to some people in the administration, one of the things they point out is that we talk all the time about, like, you know, what Congress is doing, Title 42 administration messaging, but they say that the biggest problem they have is disinformation hmm. in like Telegram and WhatsApp groups really? from smugglers? Yeah, who are just constantly there's an industry of trying yeah. to bring people up and, and bait them across and oh, get paid. Oh, I
0: see. Uh, and create these, know you know, that. incredibly
2: yeah. dangerous conditions. So, yeah. yeah, I don't know. We'll keep an eye on this one, but it is kind of amazing that it just, you know, you had hundreds of cameras down on the border waiting sure. for this the crisis, crisis, yeah, right? And in fact, right wing outlets were using old photos right. from other countries to sort of, right present the image they wanted
0: i do i you're you're absolutely right that the status quo was not working um but i think that is i don't know it kind of underscores where we are that the thing that we are thinking about is the crisis at the border or the absence of a crisis of a border rather than You know why we have these international legal obligations to asylum because it's not just to be nice although it is also like good to use your giant super wealthy country to help people who need it but it's also for the stability of the international system the u.s has been tearing up this right since the early 1990s along with a lot of help from the Europeans and the Australians. And that has an effect worldwide, because then other countries follow. And when you see asylum breaking down worldwide, as it is under American leadership, that affects huge numbers of people, and it affects many conflict zones around the world that become
2: more unstable as a result. Yeah, you're right. I mean, and viewing it as a crisis, that's always this immediate thing that is happening now and sure. not the result of long-term systemic changes, or in many cases, yeah. wars that right. the United States started or was a part of in right. places like Afghanistan right. or the Arab Spring or the climate crisis, um, it has to be a global and systemic effort to yeah. figure out the next thing. Right.
0: I don't want to lay it all on Biden's feet. I mean, I, I oh, kind no. of think our guy Obama was the like basically the only one who had any years in office where he was not actively eroding the right
2: to asylum. It's um, I don't know. Probably. I mean, there was a lot of deportation happening. There was an effort. You know, that kind of died in 2013 to get a comprehensive immigration reform package done. And then it just turned into Republican demands for border security. And the American people's opinions turned pretty harshly against welcoming people.
0: Right. It is true. There is not a popular consensus in favor of
2: asylum whatsoever. No, it's probably the worst polling issue for Democrats, I think, out there. Uh, Awful. We'll keep talking about it, though. Um, uh, In Israel, the Israeli government and the Palestinian Islamic Jihad militant group reached a ceasefire after five days of fighting. They killed 33 Palestinians and two people in Israel. This round of fighting started when Israel bombed three uh, PIJ commanders in Gaza, killing them along with 10 civilians. The PIJ responded with rocket fire, Mm -hmm. and the fighting continued until the Egyptian government stepped in to help broker a ceasefire. The good news, you know, for the millions of people in Gaza, for hundreds of thousands of Israelis, have been terrified for the last week is that there's this pause but you know big swaths of gaza are once again leveled they probably won't be rebuilt as they weren't the last time because they can't bring in concrete yeah there's no yeah there's still a blockade there's no process in place to resolve all the underlying tensions that that feed this tension in the fighting hamas didn't get involved in this round that is seen as a good thing it probably helps shorten the timeline of the war itself but you know it's just a reprieve really
0: yeah I, I am reminded of an Israeli expression that is sometimes used for their policy towards Gaza, which I once got into a long conversation with an editor over whether we could even put it in the paper because it's so horrible. I know Do what you're you know? saying, yeah. yeah, mowing the lawn. awful. It's yeah. really right. And that that is the policy. And the policy is that you just, you don't, like you're saying, you don't fix the underlying issues because you don't want to and you don't have to if you're Israel. You build up a wall to insulate yourself from the consequences so all those consequences fall on people in Gaza. Occasionally, conflict springs up, and then the mowing the lawn is you go in, and, or you don't go in, you, you know... Launch missiles, whatever drone strikes, and kill what you think is the appropriate number of people to stop the violence. Yes. and, and
2: expend their munitions. Right, and expend their munitions. Yep. Yeah, not good, not good. For the one, some little good news for those who were worried about tensions between the U.S. and China. Here's a sliver of good news, Max. Oh uh, yeah. Jake Sullivan, President Biden's uh, national security advisor, had two days of meetings with his Chinese counterpart in Vienna, Austria. They met for about eight hours. No one's suggesting this was like a big breakthrough. But uh, hopefully this, you know, relieved a bit of pressure that's been building up since the, the spy balloon incident and other things. Uh, still no planned phone call or meeting between Biden and President Xi Jinping of China yet.
0: I'm really glad that you brought this up because this is this is the, like, maybe the most important thing that is happening in the entire world are the escalating tensions between the U.S. and China. There's not, like, other than the balloon or some stuff, there's not, like, a single moment to draw attention to it. But yeah. if you talk to, like... People who are involved in foreign governments or people who are, you know, policy analysts around the world, they are freaked out Mm -hmm. about this. And U.S. allies in Europe and especially in Asia have been screaming for months that they are really, really worried about how bad it's getting, about how zero sum it is, how black and white, and about where it's going to go because no one seems to have an off ramp for it. Like people will go to China and they'll talk to policy people there and they'll say it's getting much worse, much Mm -hmm. faster than we think. And so... Even if this is just a like Jake Sullivan dipping his toe in the water, maybe we have a conversation about having a conversation about potentially easing things back. That's great.
2: Yeah, I'll take it, too. Yeah, I'm I'm there, too. Anything to just chill out, especially when the consensus to Washington is just hawkishness, Right. bipartisan, everybody. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of good news from Sudan. Uh, The civil war there has been going on for about a month now. The Sudanese military is fighting a paramilitary group called the RSF. They used to be allies and friends, and now they are at war. Uh, I've seen reports now that over 1,000 people have been killed. I'm sure that's an undercount. The UN says 200,000 Sudanese have left the country. Another 700,000 have been internally displaced by the fighting. So we just wanted to update folks on that because we were leading with it for several weeks, but it's just sort of status quo awful at the moment.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, so, okay, that's bad news. Max, you're our in-house optimist here. You said you had some good stories.
0: I do. I wanted to use our time together, both you and me and the listeners, Mm -hmm. to come up with five, which is not even hard to find, five really good things happening in the world that can make you feel good about being on planet Earth right now. So I'm going to run through them. Okay. Number one, the Greek economy. Remember when that used to be a punchline or the most horrifying thing you've ever heard for many, many years? Thriving thriving. I didn't know that. I, I didn't either. Well, until I read about it. <laughs> um, 6% GDP growth last year has been consistently outpacing the Eurozone average and even double at some points. Uh had a big rise in trade, big rise in tourism. It's had a ton of foreign direct investment from Google, Amazon, Microsoft, Pfizer. Um, educated Greeks who left during the financial crisis are returning in big numbers. And remember, it was like, The Greek financial crisis 13 years ago. It
2: wasn't just bad. It was like catastrophic. Like the country was cratering for people who are listening, thinking, why do I give a shit about Greece? (laughs) I can't tell you how many meetings I sat in with Barack Obama, where people were his economic advisors and national security staff were talking to him about the Greek debt crisis and the risk of default. It was going to pull down the entire EU. We thought it could crater the global economy again, right right after the financial crisis. You had the Germans and the French demanding that they cut their way out of uh the problem meanwhile the greeks owed a lot of uh, money to french and german banks but it didn't really they? get talked about so yeah. <laughs> yeah the fact that uh greece is on its feet is a huge deal right and the greek
0: far right that had been profiting from that so long is not doing so well anymore and mm-hmm. they're having elections next week and it's either probably going to be the incumbent government or left-wing syriza is going to win
2: there we go show italy how to do it
0: <laughs> okay here's good news in a place you might not be expecting it iraq okay every year Since 2003, there has been a big wave of militant attacks during Ramadan. This year was the first year in 20 years it did not happen. There was no mass violence by militants. Is there a sense of why? Let me give you a quote from a military blogger named Joel Wing. The insurgency, which he refers to the Islamic State and all the other insurgent groups that have been operating there for so long. The insurgency is a shell of its former self Hmm. and it is isolated in the rural, mountainous and desert regions of Iraq where it has become irrelevant.
2: Even the sort of Iranian-linked Shia militias that are are kind of close to the government? I mean, a lot of them probably went and fought and died in Syria. That's true. Yeah. No,
0: things are... I mean, I'm not going to say things are amazing there, but the... Just wrenching security crisis that Iraqis have lived with for, you know, for many of them their entire life. Yeah. I'm not saying it's over, but that what was this marker of how horrible it was is looking a lot better. And, you know, I will be crossing my fingers that they will, the country will consolidate that and turn that into some political progress too. That's great. Here's one from India, another place that usually makes me incredibly depressed mm-hmm. to read about. A really big defeat for Narendra Modi's party, the BJP, in the state of. Karnataka. If you are not familiar with Karnataka, it's because it is a very, very small Indian state, only 60 million people, only two Texases. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) it's India, baby. Um, BJP lost power in the state legislature in the most recent elections and now controls no state governments in the South. And it is widely seen as specifically a repudiation of Modi, who personally held 20 rallies there to try to win the election. And especially of his brand, of hardline authoritarian hindu nationalism which he and his party have been pushing really really hard in advance of the elections because usually that works really well for them in elections doing things like banning muslim girls from wearing head coverings in schools which in the past has been very effective unfortunately for the bjp in winning support from hindus by whipping up some sectarian tensions so probably this is not representative of all of india southern india is kind of its own thing in a lot of ways it's still very popular in the north but it is a really good sign that at least this big part of india and this big state looked at this model of hindutva of extremism that has been gathering so much momentum in india and said no we don't want any more of this
2: that's great especially since not long ago uh an indian court Decided to throw in prison or or offer a jail sentence to the leading Congress party opposition leader. Right.
0: Yeah. At a time when, when so many trends are unfortunately pushing in the wrong direction, it is nice to see Indians pushing back. Yeah.
2: Absolutely. Okay. Uh, this is working.
0: Yeah. This is working. Loving this, me. right? Eleven, I like a little this. happiness. I yeah. Like a little happiness. Okay. Number four. This one is is going to be a little controversial. So I will I will couch what I mean when I say that this is good news. The United Nations had its first official commemoration of what Palestinians refer to as the Nakba or the catastrophe, Mm -hmm. which refers to the 1948, that's 75 years ago, 1948 mass expulsion uh, and departure of 700,000 Palestinians from the territory that is now controlled by Israel. Um, The event itself, I would say I'm not endorsing in its totality. Uh, Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian leader, had some things to say that uh, were not so great. Uh, But I think it is good not just for the Palestinians, but frankly also for Israelis to have um, recognition of Palestinians trauma as well as traumas like the Holocaust that led to the creation of Israel, Because not just because I want to see the Palestinians get recognition in itself, although I do, but also because I think that is just important for peace and for moving things forward so that these two peoples can try to understand each other.
2: You know, I really, I don't get why Israeli officials um, lobby so hard against events like this. Like, for example, the Israel's UN ambassador said, attending this despicable event means destroying any chance of peace by adopting the Palestinian narrative, calling the establishment of the state of Israel a disaster. And I feel like we're kind of Getting mm-hmm. stuck on a, an adjective, a description right. of an event that, for if you have a little empathy for the individuals involved, if you got pushed out of your home, you would probably feel very badly about that event. the The interpretation that's happening here is the suggestion that uh, it's anti Semitic because it's denying that the state of Israel should exist mm-hmm. itself, but. Ah, uh, what I would argue—that's argue, not what it means. Yeah, yeah, I, I think this is commemorating history, right? And that you're destroying any chance of peace by not having peace negotiations. Right. I mean, this is This event isn't going to change any facts on the ground. And I will say with you, I, I you know, Abbas compared. Um, some of the Israeli government's rhetoric to Nazis, and that's obviously an insane thing to say and totally offensive. And he should stop. He's done that before and it doesn't help him. It doesn't help the Palestinian people. He hurts his own cause by doing this. But at the same time, like, I don't think any of us should be in the business of denying historical events.
0: Well, I mean, I think the Israeli, and it's not blanket Israeli opposition, but the Israeli government's opposition to recognizing this is about right of return. I oh, think. absolutely. And as if if you acknowledge that it's a, that it was bad, that 700,000 Palestinians who now have millions of descendants, many of them living in um, refugee camps in neighboring countries is bad, then you might have to talk about whether they can come back and they don't want to have that conversation because they want to maintain a clear Jewish majority in the country.
2: For sure. It's just such a logical leap to suggest that, oh, yeah. you know, saying yeah, that you know, for an individual yeah. who lost their home, that right. it's bad means we have to acknowledge the right of return. Right. It's going to be part of a final status negotiation no matter what these sort of questions. Uh, and in the U.S., you know, if the negotiation happens, if it ever happens, right. the U.S., you know, I think um, opposed the Nakba then and lobbies against these sorts of events at the U.N. Right. There was a fight about this uh, in the U.S. Congress. But I'm with you, I think, like a little more open uh, yeah. and less. We should be able to have these conversations. About let me let me actually events.
0: read a quote to you by um, that was from the afterward from a book called The Holocaust and the Nakba by two Israeli scholars hmm. named Bashir Bashir and Amos Skolberg. Unless we can hold these two moments in our hearts and minds as part of the same story, there can be no moving forward in the seemingly unmovable conflict that is Israel-Palestine. So, there are Israeli voices is calling, too, for saying, like, let's recognize history. Yeah, let's talk about it. Okay. Number five in our great, great news list. So, the winner of the Thai elections, the um, leader of that party... Mm-hmm. The uh, move forward party that is l- very likely to become the next Thai prime minister. A guy named Pita Limgeronrat is, uh, I'm just going to say it, certified hottie. <laughs> how, old, how old is he? <laughs> uh, that's a good, he's he's uh, born in 1980. Okay. Which I, is 42, that's the same year you're 40, born, right? Yeah. 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 So uh, what do you think? He's millennial,
2: right? Yeah, we listen. We, uh, <laughs> I am not Gen X. I refuse to be called that. But it's certainly on the on the later cusp of millennials, mm-hmm. some would argue it's... Mm-hmm. Uh, well after the cusp <laughs> but yeah i think you know uh you know gen x on the streets uh, millennial on the sheet something like that i don't know but i'm glad he's hot that's great I,
0: I am too and i should say um we did have a discussion with the head of hr for crooked media yeah. it's about whether it was okay to say that the next high prime minister is hot and she said that it was and i'll say i think this is also good news because i think we could use more hotties international politics, especially San Marin lost office. Although, if you would like a bonus six-piece of good news, speaking of San newly single.
2: Well, Available. Listen, I'm going to brush right past all this, but it's, it's <laughs> absolutely true that uh, image and appearance matters in politics. I mean, you know, no one's talking about Mahmoud Abbas. So in am I am I sullying, sullying your podcast? Absolutely not. Absolutely <laughs> not. You're. Just, I've always you're just said that Pod truth. Save the
0: World could be a little hornier. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Listen, I, uh, I, Barack Obama certainly benefited uh, from being seen as young and cool. And oh, the, the, the beach picture that didn't that didn't hurt him. Didn't
0: hurt yeah, him on the campaign then trail.
2: Dad jeans too.
0: Well, nobody's perfect. No, nobody's perfect.
2: Okay, those were five very uh, hope filled stories I like what was that was your favorite um what was my favorite I like the Indian elections
0: I like I like millions of people coming together to renounce racism and hate I like that
2: yeah I think that's really good yeah I think that's good I think uh, I think that the whole Thailand story is really great yeah it's exciting yeah before we end uh, we did want to encourage listeners to pour one out for the people of Italy where the government had to call an emergency meeting to address a jump in the price of pasta, which is up 17.5 uh, percent year over year in March, which is double the average inflation in Italy right now. A uh, Washington Post story about this crisis noted that 60 percent of Italians eat pasta daily. Mm-hmm. So take that paleo diet. How do they all look so good? I don't know. I think it's a pr- proportion. I mean, French people olive too. Olive oil. They eat lots of butter and you know heavy things and. So you're saying I should cut it off at three pounds of pasta three per of pasta. meal? Yeah. I, I do think pasta is one of those dishes that at some point people like kind of maybe wrongly bucketed into an unhealthy basket. I mean, it's and all it's carbs. Just fine.
0: It's not. Do you it's remember when same. when Italy lost in the earthquake? They lost their like national Parmesan yeah. reserves. It's rough. Giant Italy could wheels. use some could use some love here. They need a break. They yeah. need a break, yeah. and they
2: did just. Uh, uh, elect a far-right prime minister. Yeah, maybe you don't do that, Italy. Finally, uh, this is a little bit of a spoiler for those who haven't watched this season of Succession, so turn the podcast off now. But there is a scene where uh, Conor Roy is asked to drop out of the presidential race in exchange for an ambassadorship. Mm -hmm. What's he he offered? First uh, Mogadishu? Oh. (laughs) And then he's offered (laughs) the slows? He says he's a a no
0: on the slows. And he, he goes on this riff, and I have to tell you, I'm kind of impressed with Conor Roy's level of geopolitical and geographic Absolutely. knowledge. He's like making a case for the Koreas, talking about Oman. Like, Conor
2: Roy, maybe a worldo. Yeah. What do you say? Uh, Oman is a poor man, Saudi Arabia, or rich <laughs> man's Yemen. <laughs> rich man's Yemen. Yeah. The yeah. Per-
0: Pearl of Arabia. Yeah.
2: The show is just, it's genius. And, it,
0: uh, uh, what, and then what does he say in the most recent episode? Uh, Uh, Oh, and he's asking for an ambassador, Could I get a sniff of a little guy? Organize a little coup down in old Peru. (laughs) Put me in a van down to Tajikistan. Be our fun guy in Uruguay. Tommy, if you had to suspend your $100 million vanity presidential run to accept an ambassadorship, what do you think? Would you be our fun guy down in Uruguay? What country would you ask for? Peru would
2: be very cool. Peru would be cool. Um, It's a little messed up these days. Yeah, it's a little tough. Chile, I think, would be my preference if we were going for regional. Yeah chile has been having a rough go of it lately too. Yeah, but you know, you got great wine, you got great food, you got yeah. a beautiful place. Yeah, yeah. Um, Where else? I don't know, Brazil will be great. I mean, post Bolsonaro. Man, you're really going for the, you really want to work. Well, I'm thinking sort of South America, uh, you know, Time's if you over. want to just be cushy, you could go sort of Caribbean yeah. area yeah. or, you know, like donor spot in a European <laughs> capital.
0: Oh, right. Like, like with San, San Marino.
2: Yeah. Or, or, you know, even just sort of any of the big ones, yeah. you know, France, yeah. Italy.
0: Brazil is a good choice. I think the actually the the U.S. has has been playing a more active role in Brazil where they really helped with the coup proofing with the most recent election. I think they're getting tighter with Lula. You're kind of selling me on Brazil. It's also easily one of the most beautiful countries it's in the world. Truly. Uh, yeah.
2: I, I would love to live in. Brazil. Shout out to Brazil. Shout out to Brazil and to, uh, to Conor Roy. And To everyone listening, shout out to Ben, who is uh, probably traveling back right now and maybe listening to this. Uh, I think that's all we got for today. It's a great show, Tommy Tuberville.
0: You're an idiot. Can you, on behalf of the Tommy community, renounce the extremism among the Tommies? Gladly, gladly. <laughs> he is he's
2: got to be one of our worst Tommies. What As a moderate
0: Tommy, don't you do you feel like you're kind of responsible?
2: Yeah, and you know it's annoying that he was a pretty good football coach.
0: <laughs> this is why I'm glad there are no Maxes in politics. Just people's
2: dogs. There was that guy in New York, Max Rose. I got nothing. There you go. uh, the
0: Montana senator
2: of Max? Baucus. Baucus, that's yeah, right. he held up uh, Obamacare for yeah, months he's, he's and months and months. Yeah, he's not so great. Okay, you know, okay. okay. we need a good Max. Probably a lobbyist. I think we made him ambassador to China. Really? One point. Yeah, I don't know. This shit out weird in the second <laughs> term. Uh, all right, that's all we got for today. Uh, talk to you next week. All right. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week and check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support.